God is a clever thief. God's a good robber. God is a mask bandit intent on picking our pockets and excited to fill our pockets with something else. This morning, we look at God and we recognize that He is stealing something and He's saving something. We recognize that, that He is taking something away and He is giving something in return. We see that, that God is seizing something from us. And He's also bestowing something to us. We're in this series together. Not only are we in the series together, but the series is called Together. Uh, we're, we're listening to God through His Word, and we're finding out that we're really in the same boat. We're really playing on the same field. We're really sitting around the same table, aren't we? Uh, in, in chapter 1 of Romans, we, we came together and we found out that none of us, none of us, without, uh, without exception, none of us have an excuse. We're all going to stand before God. And none of us, not, not any single person in this room, not a person around the world, uh, uh, not a person across the pew, not a neighbor, not a friend, none of us have an excuse. Last week we, we came together, we looked at uh, parts of Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 and we said, hey, we're together under a strange kind of flag and it's the flag of sin. All of us, all of us have sinned. We're all alike under sin. And we had to read through that, those tough passages where it says, hey, nobody is righteous, none. Not you, not me, not the person across the aisle, not the person next door, uh, not the person up front speaking, no one is righteous. And so we all enter together under a banner of sin. And so this morning, uh, we're going to continue to fill out this idea of, of what we're really in it together for. And God continues to, to fill in the gaps of, of how we are together. And this morning, you'll be excited to know that we're, we're going to be under a different banner. We're not going to be under the banner of sin. We're going to be under a different banner. And together, together we can come together and say, this will be something. But God, God is stealing something from us. Make no mistake about it, God is robbing us of something. He's seizing something. He's taking something away. But before I tell you what God is seizing from us, before I tell you what God has robbed from us, before I tell you what, what God has picked our pockets and taken away, I want to tell you what God has given. I want to talk to you about what God bestows on us. I want to talk to you about what He saves us from. I want to talk to you about what He's offering. And so if you want to join me, go to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. If you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and open it. Acts and then Romans in the New Testament. If you have a pew Bible, uh, page 784. 784. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 21. God gives way more than he takes. God gives way more than he takes. Notice chapter 3, verse 21. But now, there's a contrast here. Uh, he's saying something is different from what he's just said. Uh, go back just a, a, a little bit to, to verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. Nobody. Y you don't get it, right? Well, we can't have righteousness. The law was good for one thing to make us conscious of sin. It was a mirror to all the, the wrinkles and cracks in our own life. Here's a mirror. Here is sin. No one is righteous. And then he says, but now... But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Everything is coming to a head. The Old Testament, the prophets were looking forward to this moment. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Now, I'm going to get back to that. This is a really incredible point that Paul is making. We're going to come back there. Hold that in readiness, okay? He said, there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God gives way more than he takes away. God gives way more than He takes away. Now, there's really two pieces here, two parts, two sections of God giving way more. There's God's peace and there's our peace, and I want to talk about both of them, but I want to talk about God's peace first. You see, there's these three images uh, that, that Paul begins to just rattle off, one right after the other, and he begins to say, hey, this is what God has given for you. Right? Those of you who are unrighteous, there is something contrasting uh, that's making righteousness available for you. So those of you who came this morning and said, I, I want a right relationship with God. I want to uh, have a spiritual economy with God that is healthy and right. I want my spiritual bank account to be full. Those of you that walked in this morning, you have that opportunity. Notice what God is giving. He gives way more. And there's these images that He presents Look at verse 24. We're justified freely by His grace. Now, just stop there. There's this big term. It's going to happen over and over and over again in the, in the book of Romans. Justified. It's, it's a term. It's an image. It's a metaphor that Paul is using to try and, and get us to understand what it is that God in His grace is giving to those who long for Him. He's saying, he's saying, Hey, you're all in a courtroom. 
You see, it's a term of law. You're, you're all in a courtroom, and, and you're the defendant. You're the one who's on trial. And, and God, God the Father, is there, and he's, he's the ultimate judge. And we've already been told that we have sin on our account. I mean, there's DNA evidence that we have committed the crime. I mean, this is an open and shut case. And when he brings that gavel down, it's done, it's ended. And he's saying, but, but, all have fallen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, although you're in that courtroom, Although you're in that courtroom, you have this incredible opportunity for Jesus to be your lawyer. And he walks up to the judge and he says, hey, hey, judge, she's with me. He's with me. And he buys back He buys back your punishment. You're not going to jail. You get to get a jail free card. Not only are you not going to jail, he's going to go to jail for you. And you're going to walk the streets free. You are justified, right with God. Your spiritual bank account stands full. That's what he's talking about when he talks about justification. Those who are desiring righteousness. Verse 25, uh, another image. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had let the sins beforehand uh, committed beforehand unpunished. Now, what he's talking about is those people in the Old Testament. Hey, what happens to their sins? He's saying, uh, for a time, God allowed like the, uh, the sacrifices of animals to be a covering, but they had to continue to cover those sins over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. He said he had to, uh, they had to just continue to sacrifice animals, right? We go back into the Old Testament and there's a day, it's a day of atonement and it was a special day and there was a mercy seat of God and blood would be poured out on the, uh, on the mercy seat and it was, it was the presence of God and it, the blood was a, a, a temporary covering for the people's sins. And he's saying, that day was looking forward to this day. That day in the temporary sacrifice was looking forward uh, to the permanent, once for all, supreme, absolute sacrifice of Christ. The one who was going to come to the final mercy seat as God and say, I am going to cover their sins forever. That's pretty good news, isn't it? I am going to cover it. I'm going to cover it with my own son's blood. And it's going to be covered, not just for tomorrow, not for a couple of days, not till next year, not till, you know, I do something really bad forever. My sins before, my sins now, and my sins still to come. And he says, 
This is what God is giving to you. And he uses another image. It's actually, I, I, I skipped over it. Uh, he says uh, in verse 24, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word of a slave, a prisoner of war who has been bought back. It's a slave who has, has constantly been entrenched and now is no more. They have been set free. We're going to get there. Paul's going to say it in some terms later on in the book of Romans. He's going to say, hey, you were a slave to sin. And that's what he's saying right here. Hey, those of you who long for this right relationship with God, you, you were a slave to sin. But Christ, Christ has set you free. God gives way more than we can possibly understand. He gives way more than He takes. I began to try and digest these three images that Paul uses in, in succession of one another. right? Justification and redemption and atonement. And I tried to wrap my mind around that. And then I began to think of my own daughter. My own kids. What God did for, for us in sacrificing His only Son. And then I began to think of my daughter. When's an opportunity that I would have had is there a time when, when someone was, was picking on my daughter or, 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 or my son and, and, and I just said, well, you know, it's okay, just, just go ahead. Uh, go ahead and beat up on them so that you might have redemption. There was a time uh, we were in a, a, a large gathering of people and there was a group of kind of ornery boys. And they were playing kind of rough, and, and they came to Lydia, and, and uh, you know, I'm kind of watching it unfold, and she's a pretty tough kid, so I kind of let it go for a while, and then they kind of backed her into a corner, and there was two or three of them, and Papa Bear came out, <laughs> and I rushed over there, and I was like, hey, get away, you know, like, Right? And all of you would say, that was the right decision. You should do that for your daughter. Let me tell you, I love my daughter more than I love you. And I love you. But if it had to mean that my daughter is going to get beat and spat upon and they're going to use her in any way that they want so that you can have redemption, I'm sorry. I'm out. I'm not going to stand there and let that happen. But God would. And we find that God will give way more than He'll take. And then we're, we're forced into something. We're forced to recognize. We're, we're, we're forced to come together. That, remember, I told you there was these two parts, and the first part was God's, and then there's going to be our part. There's this other section. There's this other piece. There's God's piece, and He gives way more. But it really calls upon us to respond. It really calls upon us to recognize something. We have to become keenly aware of our own sin, don't we? We have to absolutely recognize the kind of sinfulness, the kind of rebellion, the kind of ignorance that we've had. 
And it can't just be simply, well, yeah, you know, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. No, no, no. Like, what is your sin? You see, all of chapter 2 and really all of chapter 3 up to this point has really been about, hey, recognize that you are a sinner. What happens when we begin to recognize our own sin? What happens when we begin to recognize our own sin is we recognize what God is saving us from. You see, if we don't recognize our own sin, then there's no need for God. Because we have absolute self-sufficiency. So what is it that is your sin? Remember that verse, verse 23? It's that famous verse. We probably all know it. It looks a lot like verse 9. All are alike under sin. It's that togetherness in sin that we talked about last week. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is your sin? I began thinking about that question and it, it, it led me really to Jesus. And Jesus is out there in the wilderness uh, for 40 days and he's being tempted by Satan himself. We all know temptation. Later on, Paul's going to say in another writing of his, he's going to say, hey, nothing has seized you in regards to temptation except what's common to man. Everybody's experienced it. We all know temptation. And the temptation is to sin, uh, to take what we know is right and do the wrong thing anyway. And, and, and Jesus, it's recorded in the Gospels that he was tempted in the wilderness. And, and oftentimes those, those temptations are, are, are categorized in three ways. That he was tempted with the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Some of you may have heard that before. These are very common to us, right? The lust of the flesh, right? Uh, maybe maybe uh, the lust of the flesh for you is a sexual sin that you just can't seem to separate yourself from. Uh, maybe it's a, a gossip or you're a busybody and, and you just love, uh, you know, Proverbs talks about the morsel of gossip. Oh, you just put your ear to the ground or let me know a little more. I mean, you love Facebook because it just allows you to do that in private now as opposed to in public. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's that you have a rage and an anger about you. Uh, you, you, uh, you're in traffic and someone cuts you off or does something different and, and, and your first reaction is like, ma. What are you doing? And then you mumble some words underneath your breath, or maybe not. What is your sin? The lust of the eyes. We all know about pornography. But the lust of the eyes is way more than just about a sexual sin on the internet or in the magazine. The lust of the eyes uh, can be very much about our present discontentedness, can't it? And we walk outside and we have a perfectly running vehicle and then we look over across the parking lot and their truck's nicer than mine. They've got a bigger boat. Their motor's bigger. 
I like what they have more than I like what I have. And we begin to compare not just the things that we own, but the people that we are, don't we? Oh, they're better than me, or I'm better than them. And so our whole life becomes this temptation that we've engaged in because oh, really what we're about is just comparing each other to one another. The pride of life. Ooh, that one hurts, doesn't it? It does for me. I know I look at the pride of life and have you ever been in a situation and, and someone else gets a great compliment for me, someone else might go and they'll be talking about some sermon that they heard somewhere else and they're like, oh man, uh, they're telling me like, oh, they are such a great preacher. <laughs> I'm, I'm an okay preacher. Man, does the pride of life come out in that or what? Right? You think that their compliment is a negation of what you are able to do? Rather than going, man, you know what? Yeah, they are a great preacher. They do some tremendous things for the Lord and mean it. Like, are we really able to celebrate with other people in the things that they're accomplishing? Or are we saying, man, how come I'm not getting more credit? How come people aren't noticing the job that I do and only the job that they do? The pride of life. What is your sin? We need to know our sin. Because when we do, when we do, it will open up the door for us to experience a freedom in God's grace that cannot be matched. If you do not think that you are a sinner, find your sin. And know it so that you can come to Jesus. God is graciously giving. He gives always more than He takes. He is constantly giving. He wants to, to give graciously. That's part of His gracious character. That's part of His nature. He wants to give to us. But what is it that He takes Everybody's a little nervous, right? What is it that he's going to take? What is it he's going to steal? What is it he's going to seize? How is he going to pick my pocket? I want to suggest to you that, that what he steals, what he takes, is what he takes from Abraham. And what we find is that God owed Abraham nothing. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham our... Uh, what shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this manner? If in fact Abra Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, uh, he's asking the question about Abraham being justified by works because the Jews had this crazy notion 
That Abraham, although he was before the Mosaic law, uh, before any of the law was even written, that Moses had kept the law. And so because he had kept the law, because he had done great things, because he had been faithful to God, that God owed him justification, that God owed him righteousness. And Paul says, in contrast, no. You got that all wrong. God owes Abraham nothing. God owes him nothing. Zero. Zilch. You see, we find, we're, we're a little surprised to find why it is that Abraham was considered righteous before God. It wasn't because Abraham was faithful. It was because God was faithful to Abraham. It's at this piece, it's at this moment, it's at this uh, tipping point that we realize what it is that God steals from us, what He robs, what He picks our pocket with. You see, He did for Abraham. He steals from Abraham what He will steal from us. He steals from Abraham the necessity of work for righteousness. He steals from Abraham off of his pedestal an opportunity to work to be justified before God. In other words, he could not work to have a right relationship with God. It wasn't going to happen. You see, Abraham was unfaithful. If you go back to Genesis and look up the story of Abraham, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, if you go back to Genesis, uh, you're going to recognize that there were a number of times where God was faithful even though Abraham wasn't. Abraham is given this incredible promise, isn't he? You guys remember the promise? I'm going to make you into a great nation. And and there's going to be so many descendants, Abraham, uh, that you're not going to even be able to count them. They're going to be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham, there's some time goes by. Uh, God, you know that promise you made? What do you say? Like, now's a good time for me. Is it a good time for you? And Abraham takes into his own hand, I'm going to make this promise happen. And he ends up taking Hagar, his wife's maidservant, and having a kid with her. And and he says, "I've, I've got it. Here it is. And God goes, no, no, no. You just messed everything up. And twice... As he's traveling around, twice this happens. As he travels around with his wife, evidently Sarah was a pretty beautiful woman, even as old as she was. And twice Abraham says, hey, hey, tell him you're my sister. Well, why? Because he was afraid of being killed. And yet God was faithful in keeping his promise with Abraham. Abraham, 
wasn't always faithful. You see, he's not justified. He's not made right with God. His spiritual, uh, his spiritual account with God is not made full because he was always faithful, but he is counted as righteous because he had faith in God's power to bring about the promise. Abraham had faith in the faithfulness of God. That's why he's made righteous. And so we find that we are robbed of work and we are set free for faith. We are robbed of work and set free for faith. We can't do it on our own. We can't do enough stuff. We can't try and gain approval with God. It has to come through this, uh, this nugget of trust and belief in the recognition that God will do what we cannot. And I want you to see the consistency of Abraham's faith that becomes a model for our own kind of faith. Uh, look at the later portions of the chapter in chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, that, that, that's you and I, by the way, not for him alone, but for also, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Everybody say dead. Yeah. I'll say it like with a great big congregation dead. Ready? There, there it is. Now, he, he's going to talk about this dead. He believed, he had this faith uh, that, that, that Abraham did, uh, that, that God could do something with deadness. Go back just, just a little bit. Are you ready for this? It's so cool when the Bible does this, which is all the time. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, look at verse 14. He says, for if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless. It's worthless. In other words, you're not going to get there. You're not going to gain approval. You're not going to gain righteousness because you did all the right things or followed all the right rules or came to church that many Sundays or preached that many sermons or listened to that many sermons or memorized the whole Bible, right? He's saying we have to have faith, not in, not in us, but in God, not in us, but in God. Now, jump down, jump down a little bit to verse 19. <clears throat> without weakening in his faith, it's not weakened, without weakening in his faith, this is about Abraham, he faced the fact that his body was as good as, say it, dead. His body was as good as? dead. His body was dead. Now, since he was about a hundred years old, anybody in here a hundred? Okay, I got some time to go. All right. That's older than me. And I think probably older than you too. And Sarah's womb, excuse me, and Sarah's womb was also, say it, dead. We're getting a lot of deadness. Do you get it? Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. But, 
He didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to, be, glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham failed the entrance faithfulness exam. He could not be faithful enough. He'd already failed, just like you and I have failed. Abraham is just like all of us in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that have fallen in sin. He couldn't be faithful enough. He was, in the spiritual economy of God, absolutely, say the word, dead. He was absolutely dead. And you know what you and I are uh, outside of faith in Christ? We are dead. You know what you are without Christ? You are dead. We're dead. That's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm in a coffin. I'm in the ground. I am dead. But notice, notice what Abraham's faith was focused on. I'll read it again. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, that's you and I, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Abraham had faith. Abraham had faith in the power of God to bring life from something that was in death. He said, I know I'm dead. I know my wife is dead. But God has the power to bring about the promise. You and I, we're dead. We're dead. Our faithfulness isn't going to be good enough. But God is saying, I'm going to rob this from you, but I'm going to fill your pocket with the kind of grace, the kind of reward, if you'll only do this thing. Will you believe in me? Will you believe in the power, in the promise that I am setting before you? Will you trust? Will you believe that I, God, can bring something from death to life? Notice the very last verse in the chapter. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, He was raised to life so that we could be in a right relationship with God. There was a song that I heard recently, and I, I, I just had to print out the lyrics and share it with you. It's a song we've sung here, Oh, Come to the Altar, and it captures, it just captures me. The content is so rich. It says, you know what? We have been robbed of our work for an opportunity to be righteous, but we have been set free so that we can believe, so that we can have faith, so that we can have trust. Here are the, here are the lyrics. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Why? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Christ. Gang, it's time to say, I was robbed of my work for self-righteousness sake, but I have been set free to believe, and today you can believe. Maybe you've wavered in your belief. Today you can believe and have faith and trust that God is good on His promise. Maybe you have never made that decision and you need to talk to somebody about that. Today is the day in which you can say, I am being set free to believe. Today is your day. God stole something from you. But He's trying to set you free for something else. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank You for Your goodness and Your Word which just opens up this whole other world to us that we don't have always uh, in the palm of our hand. Put it there and help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to recognize what it is that You've set us free to. Thank You, God. You're good. In Jesus' name, amen.